Well, good morning, Wheaton Bible. How are we this morning? Welcome to church. Can we stand together? And hello to everybody streaming with us online. We're so glad you're with us today. Let's start this time lifting our voices together and ask the Lord to meet us where we are. Oh 
church, he is worthy of our praise. And so with one voice this morning, wherever you're at, we raise our hallelujah. That's our song this morning. That's right. Come on. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. Come on, we believe it. I raise a hallelujah. Our defense. My weapon is a melody. Yes, it is. I raise a hallelujah. Heaven comes to fight for me.
our song this morning because of all he has done because he of all he does and all he will continue to do this is our God this is the one that we praise the one that we sing to this morning and listen to what he does for us this is from Ephesians 1 it says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is what he's done for us. And church, this is not just a story that we sing about, but this is a story that we have been chosen to be a part of. This is a story that our God has invited us into to be a part of. And so as we sing these words, as we recall and remember what Christ has done, remember this, that you are children of God, that God the Father has sent the Son. We now have the Holy Spirit. Let's sing this out together. So from heaven you came 
on church, this is our song. We sing this out together. forever for all that you've done, Lord. Yes, God. God, today we are overwhelmed by your great love for us. We are overwhelmed that even in our sin, even in our brokenness, you saw us, God. 
and you still chose to save us. And Lord, we stand forgiven because of your glorious and perfect and beautiful grace. Father, may this love change us. May we be motivated to love like you. May we be the church. We love you, Lord. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. I want to thank all of you as we get ready to look into God's Word for your generosity to Wheaton Bible Church over this last year during this pandemic and all the craziness and hostility in our our culture. God is using the church of Jesus Christ around the world to reach people, to build up people, to rescue people, uh, to empower people. And we have the privilege of being a part of the global cause of Jesus Christ. And it's your generous giving that the Spirit uses to fuel many of our ministries, all our ministries, locally and globally. Let me mention just one. Every Monday night, for years, Wheaton Bible Church has had an, a, a ministry uh, to adults experiencing loss, adults that are struggling in specific areas, and we have care groups devoted to a bunch of uh, different topics and issues, and people come together to process and to learn and to study God's Word, and it's been a fabulous, fabulous ministry. In addition, on Monday nights, we have ministry, a strong ministry, a very effective ministry to children, children coming out of some brokenness, children needing healing. And I say all that to say when you give to Wheaton Bible Church, that's exactly the type of ministries you're supporting. And I want to say thank you and glory to be to God. Amen? And now would you bow with me and let's pray as we begin to look into God's word. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, that you would draw us to yourself. And I thank you for all that you have given us, all that you are doing for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys, um, we have a, a cool topic to talk about today because we are in this wonderful series called Love Unfiltered, and we are going to look at one of the impediments to uh, the body of Christ actually being the testimony. It needs to be you being the testimony you need to be. Let me set it up this way. Rhonda and I were driving to Indiana. My mom was in the hospital. Actually, she was in ICU. We got around Chicago just fine, but by the time we came to the Indiana Toll Road, traffic came to a screeching halt. Now, Google Maps said it would be five minutes. But I do not know what that little man in the Google Maps satellite was drinking that day. But five minutes turned into 55 minutes. And I wish I could say to you, 
that I said to Rhonda, look at all these different cars so smushed together. Isn't this a beautiful sight that we're here not moving at all? What a wonderful time for you and I to sing hymns. <laughs> but I didn't say that. Instead, I started to take my frustration out on Rhonda. Now that was a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago, we were on vacation. And we were sitting by the ocean, we were having dinner, and it, it was all lovely. And Rhonda was giving me some constructive feedback <laughs> on something I was doing. Actually, it was something I saying since we relocated and moved in St. Charles and trying to um, uh, uncover the madness of a, a move like that. And Rhonda was just saying, hey, hey, Rob, and you know what I did? I turned it into an argument. Now, I can say all this because I'm retiring <laughs> in order to make Hannibal look better. Now, why do you guys think that's so funny? But actually, the truth is I'm saying this because we all struggle with anger, right? Uh, for you, maybe it's traffic also, or maybe it's your taxes, or your team or your kid's coach, or your boss, or a so-called friend, or something uh, going on in your family. For some of you, your anger runs cold. That is, you internalize it. For others of you, it runs hot. You externalize it. But all of us, all of us have our trigger points. And yet, as we come to our passage today in the love chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, and these two phrases at the end of verse 5, as we come to this, one of the things the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to tell you is that anger, any anger but that which is towards sin, and love are mutually exclusive. And I say, oh boy, when I read this. Now I want you to see how the Apostle Paul puts it. I want you to see these two phrases. Look what he says. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now every text like this has a context. And the context for us is the church in Corinth. It was a young church. It was an immature church. Uh, as I've said, it was made up of highly talented people, successful people in the marketplace, people that had extraordinary spiritual gifts. But also, in addition to being highly talented, it was a highly troubled church. Paul brings up more problems in this letter about this church than any other letter to any of his other churches. Highly talented, highly troubled. And what we learn is that anger was a big problem in this church. Believers were being pitted against other believers because they were easily angered, because they kept a record of wrong. And Paul knows that anger troubles our relationships just as a storm troubles our oceans. 
And the longer the storm lasts and the more severe it is, the more people it sends into the deep. But this is the love chapter. It's the most famous statement on love in human history, bar none. So that means we're not merely going to talk about the storm that brews in our hearts called anger, being easily angered, or or, or keeping uh, a record of wrongs. We want to get to the sunshine and the calm of love. This isn't a chapter on anger, it's a statement on anger in a chapter on love. So what I want to do is I want to do three things. I want to look, first of all, at what anger is here. That is, what was the problem in Corinth? And then second, what was underneath the problem? Or why do we get angry? What was going on here in this church? And then third, how can we heal our anger and become increasingly loving? So let's start with anger. What is anger? Anger is a self-centered response to a block goal, where love is a feeling of goodwill. Anger is a feeling of ill will. Uh, If love is giving someone a portion of your heart because you can't keep it to yourself, you know what anger is? Anger is giving someone a portion of your mind that you can't afford to lose. And it's, ouch. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Now, Paul describes the Corinthians' anger in these two phrases. And the first is, love is not easily angered. In other words, uh, they were irritable, they were touchy, they were easily uh, provoked with one another. Insiders and outsiders relative to the church. Uh, But the term behind this phrase, the the Greek word is actually stronger than just mere irritability. So look at this English word. This is an English word you and I don't use very often. It's paroxysm. And what it means, it means an outburst of anger, a fit of emotion, a a fit of rage. And the reason I show you this English word is because that's the Greek word behind not easily angered. And what we've done in our language sometimes with foreign languages, we take a, let's say, a Greek word like this and we transliterate it almost letter for letter into English. And so this is a strong reaction. We see it here in Acts chapter 15. Now this verse is talking about the Apostle Paul and Apostle and Barnabas, two extraordinary leaders. And what do we read? They had such a sharp disagreement. It's the word periexism. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, stop the periexism. And so what we discover in this word that's translated not easily angered is it really has a range of meaning. On the one hand, it could be at one end of the spectrum, it could be mere irritability. Uh, the other hand, it could be a, a, an outburst. Now let me show you how it played out with the Corinthians. Paul says, you're so still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Now I know the word anger isn't used there, but here's the question. 
what is underneath a jealousy and quarreling if not at least anger why do you quarrel with people because we're angry with them uh, we're frustrated now Paul in just a couple chapters will tell us their anger underneath their quarreling got so bad that they were taking one another as believers to court now never mind that God is slow to anger. No wonder Paul devotes an entire chapter to love in this letter for this young immature church. But there's more. We read that the Corinthians also, their anger got manifested because they uh, kept a a record, I, I mean, think about this, a record of wrongs. Literally, they kept a book on someone's evil. This is the fifth time you've done it. Well, how do you know that? Well, I keep it in my iPad. And Paul is saying, no, stop keeping lists. And we may not keep them in our iPad, but we keep them in our head. Paul is talking about do not hold grudges. Uh, don't be resentful. Uh, don't harbor bitterness. It's one of the most unloving things you can do. And it's one of the reasons the body of Christ fractures here, fractures there. So, for example, what does Paul say to the Corinthians in chapter 6? The very fact that you have these stupid lawsuits among you means you have already been completely defeated. Strong language. And then he says, would, not ra- would you not rather be wronged? Why not be wronged? Now this is amazing. Paul is saying, not merely don't hold a record of wrongs, He's saying, be willing to be wronged. What? Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying, roll over and play dead. Paul is not saying to ignore sin, injustice, abuse, evil. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying to these believers, would you stop keeping lists of other people's weaknesses, failures, your church, your leaders, your neighbor? He's saying, you guys are believers. Would you talk it through? Would you work it out? And do not take church problems to secular authorities. And and by the way, this is why forgiveness, you and I forgiving each other is so central to the spiritual life. And not surprisingly, as Paul is trying to help these uh, people who are keeping records and keeping lists. Um, That's why he helps them with forgiveness. Look what he says in his second letter. If anyone has caused grief, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Now that's interesting. If anyone has caused you grief, anyone has been a pain, anyone has been difficult, anyone has been... uh, um, Uh, disappointing to you, he doesn't just say forgive him and do this thing intellectually. He says, go the extra mile, comfort him. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for that. He's saying be proactive. 
you know, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. Now he's introducing forgiveness. They're forgiveness of one another. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now notice how he lands this. In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan's scheme is to keep you touchy as a parent. Irritable as a spouse. To keep a, a list of injustices you experience at work. or with your friends. Satan wants you to keep those lists. He wants you to become bitter and resentful. But that's not love. And so we have to take our eyes off our circumstances and our off uh, are hurt and we look at God look at what Paul says and this is all in Corinthians Paul's trying to help them get past this thing that's dogging them chaining them and he says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them he's talking about believers God because you are a believer in Christ God does not keep a record as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Uh, yeah, 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 think about this. Um, God doesn't count my sin against me, but I'm going to count your sin against me. So why in the world do we do that? Why do we keep a record? Why do you got this listed? If she does this again... Ah, uh, I just feel like I want to smash him. I, I think about it on the cross. Jesus didn't explode in fury and start listing everybody's sins. Uh, uh, the people that crucified him. Man, you are so full of lust and uh, you have been sleeping around and you need to be stoned. He doesn't go on and on. Hey, you, you, you're so full of greed and so you, arrogant. Jesus start, if Jesus started listing our sins out loud on the cross, he still would be on the cross 2,000 years later, right? But he doesn't count our sin against us. That's why he died. Why in the world do we do that with others? What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. It's the same thing Paul is saying to the Corinthians in chapter 2. And forgiveness is central to a healthy spiritual life. Now I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about when I really blew it in, in, in these areas with these two things. I was a brand new pastor. I was a young youth pastor in, in my first church and it was a small church and after a, a little while I began to realize I did not see eye to eye with the senior pastor and as some more time went by I began to get angry and resentful 
of his rigidity. And I started keeping a list. He said that again. He did this. And then I made a huge mistake. Instead of going to him to talk about it, I went to others to talk about him behind his back. And it blew up. And we had a confrontation, and it went to the church board, and I'll never forget sitting in a church board meeting, and the senior pastor's there, I'm there, the board members are there, and he said to the board members, you know what needs to happen to Rob, Rob, I quote, needs to be taken out to the woodshed and whacked. (laughs) And he was right. And then the strange providence of God Some months go by, and he resigns. Uh, Maybe he was asked to resign. I don't remember. And I ended up spending nine years in this church when I didn't know inside from out when I uh, first started. But the fact that he left and I stayed doesn't excuse my sin. It doesn't excuse what I did. And I had to come face to face with how unloving I was. Uh, There have been a number of episodes in my life where I've been unloving, but that is near the top of the list. And I had to own my anger and own my resentment that was just building, and that's what resentment does. And it's not just this, it's this, 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 this. And I confessed it to God, I talked it through with the, uh, the, the church leaders, and I tell you, I learned two important things. I learned as a pastor, you always have inside information, and you've got to zip it. Bridle your tongue, as James says. Not talk about it. Because you always know things that other people don't know. And that was life-changing. But the second thing I learned was if I was going to survive in ministry, I had to, I had to learn to forgive. Anyone and anything about whatever. Otherwise, I may survive, but I wouldn't thrive. Life-changing for me. And I wonder this morning, are you easily angered? Are you keeping a list of someone else's wrongs? One of the ways you can tell is by what you say about other people behind their back when they're not present. Now, I needed to spend a a little more time on on this first section, but I want to go on now. I want to go on to the second uh, uh, section and ask this question. Why are we like this? What's behind this? What's underneath this? And the short answer is we're like this because we don't get our way, because our our goal is blocked. So you got a three-year-old who wants a toy, and you as a parent take the toy away because you know if she continues to play with this toy, she's going to hurt herself. And what's her reaction? You've blocked her goal, and your three-year-old is angry. 
Uh, Jack works long hours when he comes home. He likes things to be in a certain order, a certain way to unfold in his home. Uh, Jill, his wife, comes home, and she's busy at work as well. And you know what? When she comes home, she's just exhausted, and she wants to relax, and she doesn't want to think about anything, and she would like a little sympathy. And both of their goals are being blocked in their marriage, and both of them are angry. A 17-year-old teenage boy doesn't want to curb you, curfew. And a single-parent mother brilliantly says, absolutely not. And his goal is blocked, and he stops talking to her. He's angry. You know, we get angry because we don't get what we want, and it doesn't play out the way we want. Our, our goal's blocked here, our goal's blocked over there. But, you know, there's other things that contribute to our anger, like stress and lack of sleep, lack of coffee for some of you. I've got a daughter like this. Do not talk to me, Dad, until I've had three cups, five cups of coffee. Uh, you know, problems, lingering issues, unresolved. You know, there's all sorts of things that are kind of a, like a dark cloud that contribute to our anger. But when we come to 1 Corinthians, we see there were two specific things that were the source of their anger. And the first is their pride. This hit me like a ton of bricks when I was doing some word studies and, and discovered that the words boast and boasting occur over, 44, over 40 times in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians together. I, I, I mean, uh, Paul keeps rebuking them for their boasting. Now remember, it's a highly talented church. They had extraordinary spiritual gifts and it was creating conflict. And uh, people were divisive and there were factions and, and the church was actually ugly because there was way too much anger and way too little love. And so what does Paul do? Paul starts to take it head on with them. And look at this verse. Paul says, so then no more boasting about human leaders. I'm of Paulus, I'm of Paul. All things are yours. And then he says a little later, your boasting is not good. Now, don't you love the subtlety of that? Subtlety of that? You know, it's probably not a good idea, Paul is saying. Elsewhere, Paul is talking about being puffed up, and, and, and it's sin. And you know what Paul does in the previous verse? We're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, 5, what he does in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. What does he tell us? He tells us love does not boast. He tells us love is not proud. The fin is anger, but the shark underneath the water is pride. Because pride, well, well pride makes us self-aggrandizing. Uh, pride makes us self-righteous. Pride makes us self-excusing. Pride makes us other-blaming. Pride makes us uh, judgmental. Pride makes us critical. Uh, it's because of our pride that we talk about other people uh, behind their back. The reason I did what I did with that senior pastor was because of my own pride. And I was absolutely convinced on my high horse as a young youth uh, pastor that I knew better than he did. But pride wasn't just the only issue. The Corinthians really struggled with self-centeredness. Um, 
Paul in uh, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is not self-seeking. Then he goes on to talk about anger. But look what he says in chapter 10. Uh, the Corinthians were saying, I have a right to do anything. I'm free in Christ. But Paul says, well, wait a minute, not everything's beneficial. And then he says, and, and by the way, not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now, why in the world did Paul say this? Well, you need to understand the unique historical context. And this was going on in a couple of other Paul, churches of Paul had planted. In the first century, there was a big debate in the church about whether you could eat and drink that which was sacrificed to idols. So some people, and the people that Paul is speaking to here, said, you know, I'm a believer. I am free. There's no such thing as idols. I can eat and drink anything that's sacrificed to an idol. Others said, oh my, that's tainted. And my conscience is strict in this area, and before the Lord, I can't do it. And you know, it created conflict. And so these guys were expressing their freedom, said, you know, what's the matter with you guys? Get a life. And they were angry. And so what does Paul say in verse 24? Stop being self-centered. What is self-centeredness? It's you seeking your own good, not the good of others. It's a great definition, a great description of self-centeredness. One of the best in the Bible right there in verse 24. It's exactly what we see full on, um, play out in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the Levite and the, the priest, these religious types. No heart, but all the appearances, all the externals, and they see the beaten, bloodied man lying beside the road. And what do they do? They just walk on by. Self-centeredness. The Good Samaritan comes along, and what does he do? He steps in. He gets bloody. He takes care of this guy. And the guy lives because of the Good Samaritan. What is that? That's selflessness. So let me tell you what self-centeredness is. Let me tell you what was underneath the Corinthians being easily angered and keeping lists. Self-centeredness is just walking by the needs of others. The guy in your office that's hurting. The kid on your team that's struggling. It's not listening. It's not engaging. The Corinthians, and I'm using this figuratively, were just walking by each other. And so they kept their self-righteous lists. And so here's my point, and I'm about to transition. If you look under the hood of your own heart, of your own anger and your resentment, you know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover what I discovered. Pride and self-centeredness. And that's exactly what was going on here in 1 Corinthians. 
So let's go on. Let's wrestle with this final question, this wonderful question, this question, how do we change? And I have great news for you today. Because the good news of the gospel, hear this, the good news of the gospel is Jesus has come to make you new. Can I get a, can I get a better? I mean, think about that today. Jesus has come to make you new. He has come to transform you. And he will not rest until he makes you perfect. And he wants to see you change. And he is introducing circumstances, good things, bad things into your life to help you change. And to the extent the Spirit opens your eyes and you see the the majesty and the mercy of your Savior, you will change. I'll come back to that. But generally speaking in the Bible, change involves two, let me use the word, steps. And here is the first. You look within, I mean, you look at your heart and you get serious about your anger. You get serious about your need to change. I love the way Paul Tripp puts it in his devotional. You can't look horizontally for what you will only get vertically. And you can't wait vertically for what you have been called to do horizontally. I think as believers, we struggle with both sides uh, of that sentence. But what Tripp is saying is echoed by the Apostle Paul. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You got an anger issue, you got a list issue, a bitterness issue. Work out your own salvation. Take it seriously with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you. We live vertically, but we are not lazy horizontally. We look within and we get serious about the brokenness and the the sin in our life. You see, what what strikes me, the older I get as a, a believer in God, is it's my responsibility before God to deal with my anger. My tendency to be quick-tongued, or this area or that. And I want to say to you, and I'm going to say this in love, you guys are responsible for your heart and your behavior. You're responsible for your anger. You're responsible for your resentment. And you need to own it. You need to think about it. You need to to study it. Why am I like this? What circumstances bring this out? And you need to confess it. And you need brothers and sisters around you that the Spirit will use to help change you. I mean, isn't this the point of these famous words in 1 John? If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That couldn't be a stronger statement. Uh, But on the other hand, if we confess our sin because we own it and and we're honest about it, He is uh, humble about it, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all 
unrighteousness. Now, I read these words and I ask myself the question, why is there so little confession in the church of Jesus Christ today? Why is there so little confession in our lives as believers, in, in your life, in my life? How is it that we can go days and weeks and never confess anything? And the only answer I can come up with is because we live in denial about what's going on in our heart. And, you know, what is denial? Denial is refusing to admit the truth because the truth is just too painful. And so we're not serious about the ugliness uh, that's taking place in uh, our heart and how I uh, react to this person and how I don't come through for this person. And we don't take it seriously because it's too painful, too costly. And I think, really, Rob? You're going to be okay with being quick to anger or keeping your list? And I want to tell you, if these words, these famous words in 1 John mean anything, they mean you are a believer who regularly looks within and you confess. But there's a second step, a beautiful step, and that is you look away and you get serious, not just about your sin, uh, but more so about the, the majesty and, and the mercy uh, of Jesus and all that he has done for you. You get serious about the forgiveness that is yours, the family that you have been uh, adopted into because Jesus died for you. And you look away and you contemplate Jesus. Now I want to take you to one of my formative verses, one of, a verse that's formative in my spiritual life. And it just happens to be Paul speaking to these Corinthians. And look what he says. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory from the Lord who is a spirit. And do you see what he's saying? The key to transformation is contemplation. you looking away. You're taking your eyes off yourself, your circumstances, your pain, your hurt, your woundedness, and you look to Jesus and you see Jesus' uh, majesty and mercy. The key to your transformation is your contemplation on Jesus, his glory, Paul says. What he has done for me, who he is, what he's like. Uh, love is patient, kind, not jealous. Jesus is loving, he's patient, kind. We could spend weeks just thinking about, here's how this works for me. Uh, often, I, I will tell myself, it's something like there's never been a single day in my life that I haven't sinned. There's never really been a single waking hour that I haven't sinned. And yet God in his infinite love, patience, and kindness reached deep into the bottomless pit of his goodness. And while the angels held their breath, and the music in heaven changed. He sent his son, and Jesus humbled himself. 
and surrendered and submitted and suffered as he sacrificed him on the, himself on the cross in our place, all voluntarily for our sin to rescue us from ourselves, that we might find adoption, that we might find forgiveness. And so the moment we believe, God begins a process of making us new. And I want to say to you, I am at my best when I am living in light of the majesty and the mercy of my Savior, my bleeding and dying Savior. So what happens when someone crosses me then or irritates me then or, uh, you know, it's an email or it's, a, it, it, it's something else? I'm able to respond in mercy because I'm experiencing God's mercy. You will respond in mercy to the extent that you consciously experience God's mercy. And 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to live a life of mercy, to live a life of love. And when we see the beauty of our dying Savior, then our anger will be diffused and our resentments will dissipate. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for my family here, for my brothers and sisters, and for our struggles and for the dark things that take place inside us. And I want to pray as we, uh, um, as we look within and then we look to Jesus that we would transition from uh, this, uh, this storm of anger and bitterness to the sunshine and calm of love. Would you do that by your grace? Would you do that by your power? Would you do that by your mercy? And I thank you that your mercy is infinite. Amen. this song.
seated so as we come to communion this is a table as we have just sung of mercy it's because of mercy that Jesus came to heal us of our resentments our lists the fact that we're easily provoked and what I want you to do now is let's go back uh, to these two steps and use this as a time to look within, to admit and to confess what you need to admit and confess before the Lord. And then in the quietness of this moment, thank God, express your worship and gratitude for all that he has done for you, this mercy, this forgiveness, this new life that is ours in Jesus. 
Now hear me in this. If we just do the one and confess and focus and look within, then we will live in defeat. And if we just do the other, we run the risk of living in denial. Spiritual maturity is both. I look within, I confess. I look to Jesus and I rejoice. And in the quietness of this moment, I want to invite you to do this right now. Let's bow our heads and let's talk to God. Jesus instituted communion by giving us two elements that are two symbols, a little more than symbols, but basically essentially two symbols. The bread, which points to his body that was broken, and the cup, which points to his blood that was poured out. So when we take these elements, we are aligning with Jesus. We are submitting to Jesus. We are worshiping Jesus and saying, thank you for this mercy. So if you haven't, go ahead and open this top where there's a cracker. And for some of us, it's not easy to do, but can you get it? All right, now this cracker is the bread. And it was a very solemn moment. It was near the end of the Passover meal. Jesus is in the upper room, the southern end of old Jerusalem. And he says to his disciples, pointing to what was about to come in just hours. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's a statement of mercy. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and continuing, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Father, what amazing grace, amazing forgiveness and mercy. We worship you and we praise you. 
And now, with hearts overflowing with gratitude, we sing to you. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together. Oh, 
And all God's people said, Wheaton Bible Church, you are set. To God be the glory. Have a great day.